The reading is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live life self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Hmm. You guys need a lot more coffee, I'll tell you. Well, if you, we are glad you're here, and if you're new here today, if this is your first Sunday, my name is Frank, I'm the lead pastor here, and if you're not new here, you probably know that uh, Redemption Church, all 10 congregations, are faithfully committed to taking young leaders that God has gifted and is raising up, and, and, and being a part of God's gifting and raising up of young leaders for the work in the church, and so... Uh, we love training pastors, and uh, David is on staff here, uh, graduate of Phoenix Seminary, and has done a wonderful job. You've been around a couple of years, now, more than two years now yeah, on staff yeah. doing that, and, and so uh, occasionally we have him preach, we have Josh preach, we have uh, Cody preach, and all of that. Uh, but today is a very significant Sunday uh, in David's career and life. Uh, today is the last sermon that David is going to be preaching as a single man. And so I wanted to point that out because from now on, you're going to see a much more humble David preaching. <laughs> anyway, David, go get him. <laughs> Perfect intro. Thanks, Frank. What he means is if I seem scattered today in my sermon, it's because he assigned me to preach six days before I get married. So my mind is elsewhere. In fact, she is going right now and getting the key to the apartment and kind of checking it out, making sure things are in order. So... Um, I'm eager, obviously, to get married, but I'm also eager to be here and to get the opportunity to preach. So thanks for, uh, thanks for allowing me to, to have this opportunity. If you don't know me, my name is David. I'm kind of the, the small groups pastor guy, and uh, I'm eager to share God's word with you. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to work through that section 11 through 15 today. As you're turning, I want for you to ask yourselves this, this question and think about this concept of training. Have you ever noticed that we live in a culture that highly prizes training, physical training, job training, um, it, military training, whatever kind of training, our, we live in a culture that prizes training greatly. And uh, examples include like training for a marathon. So Frank, I don't know if you guys know this, dude is a marathon runner. He runs like 13 miles in the morning. I'll call him, hey, let's get coffee. He's like, okay, I just got done running 13 miles. I'm like, it's 7 a.m. He's like, yeah, I know. I ran at 4 a.m. So uh, training is something people train for CrossFit competitions. Um, something I enjoy is firearms training. Some people say it's kind of dorky, but it's just one of the things I, I like. Um, Cody trains himself to eat tacos. Uh, we live in a culture of constant training. He does. He, admit, he admits that. And these ideas uh, of training and, and, and the goals that we set in training is this. We identify an, an end goal and we say to ourselves, I'm going to get there. I'm going to achieve that end. I'm going to train for that thing. I'm going to earn that result by the work that I put in, by the, the things that I accomplish. And if, if we're diligent in that, 
We're oftentimes successful, right? But what, in that model, what's the primary mechanism for uh, obtaining that end result? Me. You. Us. What, what we do. What we achieve. Our hard work. Our accomplishments. Now, that's not a bad thing when we're training for something. Um, physical training, job training, whatever. None of that stuff is bad because we put in that work and it's, it's for good purpose. But when we mix that, that mentality of training with how we view our relationship with God, the results can be crippling. And sadly, I'd say that many of us, myself included, at some level, we demonstrate this. We operate this way. We think that God's love is something that we can earn by training for it. We, we think wrongly that God's grace is something that we can gain by training ourselves to live righteously. Like God's going to love us more if we do more right things. But friends, this is not how God's grace works. The grace of God isn't something that we train for, but it is a thing that trains us. And that's my, kind of, that leads to my central point today, or my, my big idea. And the big idea is this, that the, the grace of God trains the people of God to long for the glory of God. So if you're a note taker, and this is the one thing you're going to take away, this is it. The, the grace of God trains the people of God to long for the glory of God. Let's pick up in the text, verse 11 here. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Well, first, as we work through this, I want to define what is God's grace? What is God's grace? If you were asked by somebody, define God's grace, what would you say? Well, this is kind of a helpful summary that I found. God's grace is simply this. It's his goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. God's grace is his goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. The Bible teaches that all people everywhere are sinners and are therefore unworthy of God's grace. All people everywhere have essentially said, no to God and said yes to whatever they wanted instead and they have opted to do things their way instead of God's way. In, in, in a word, all people everywhere are like big giant toddlers, right? They say no to authority, they say no to what the, the commands are and they opt to do things their way. And in light of this, the Bible says that we as sinners rebelling against God, that we deserve punishment. But, God chooses to show his goodness to us through his grace. Now, how does, he, how does he do this? How does God give us his grace? Well, the Bible says it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. Jesus gave his life for us. This act of giving his life, Paul says here in Titus, this act of giving his life, it brought salvation for all people. Now, what does this mean it, Salvation for all people. Does that mean literally everybody's saved, like regardless of whether or not they put their trust in Christ? No, that's not what the Bible's saying. Paul's simply saying that this is a salvation that is available to all kinds of people. The Bible says clearly that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So people that have placed their trust in Christ, their allegiance in or to Christ, can be saved. This is regardless of any distinction. This is the gospel and the grace of God is not only for a certain type of person who does this thing or doesn't do this other thing. The gospel and the grace of God is for anyone who will call it rich or, rich or poor, um, slave or free, male or female, black or white, Republican or Democrat, Hillary or Trump, right? The grace of God is for anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. So, 
if God's grace is this deep and this wide, then it leads me to this central point, like I said earlier, that the grace of God trains and gives the people of God a longing for, a hunger after, a desire to glorify God. Now, how does this work? Well, first, grace trains us. Instead of, instead of training us to, to, to say um, no to God, it trains us to say yes to God. And instead, it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace trains us, according to this text, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It enables us to have continual spiritual growth. And as God does this in us, we become more and more like Jesus. We grow in our training of grace. And we long for the glory of God through that. Now, does this mean that Christians are perfect? No, of course not. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you know, like, no, I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means. We all still struggle with sin. Even as grace trains us, we still struggle with it. There's this constant, this, this pull to say no to God and to do whatever we want. And sometimes we yield to those worldly passions. Those worldly passions are anything that's contrary to God, anything that is prevalent in a, a rebellious world against God's rule and reign. So anything from like idolizing um, a, a relationship or a job as, as the ultimate thing, um, stewing in, in bitterness or in laziness, running after sexual perversion, um, any, any number of things are worldly passions. Loving, loving your kids as the center of your universe more than anything else, all of these things Paul is saying, this is contrary to the will of God. And these worldly passions may sometimes seem overwhelming, but it's through them that we gain an appreciation for and a, and a longing for God's grace. The value of God's grace is magnified when we realize the, the weight of the depravity of our sin. God's grace trains us to long for God's glory instead of the glory for ourselves because if we were left to ourselves, we would bow the knee to sin every time. We would fall like, like uh, bowling pins in a bowling alley over and over and over. But God's mighty influence in his grace we find ourselves, instead of constantly saying yes to ungodliness and to worldly passions, instead, through God's grace, we find ourselves saying yes to God, to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, these three words, these three words here in the text, self-controlled, upright, and godly, they're listed here to paint a three-directional picture, meaning they each look in a, a different direction. Self-control has its reference to me, to, to the self, right, to, to you. Um, the uprightness is corresponding to the fellow man, so it's the second direction. And the godliness element of this, of course, refers to or has its correspondent with God himself. So in other words, there is nothing unbalanced or, or, or disproportionate about the Christian life. It is in all roundedness full of, uh, of grace and self-control and uprightness and godliness. And that grace enables us to live in such a way. The aim of that grace is to give us the great pleasure and privilege of walking in accordance with God. To be both self-controlled, so in, 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 in self-word, man-word, and God-word, three-directional. This is the kind of life that the scriptures say bring glory to God. Now that being the case, 
Our role is to cooperate in that, to be trained by it. Grace points us in the direction where ungodliness and, and, and worldly passions have no place, a life in which instead self-control, uprightness, and godliness hold their sway. And the text says that we do this in the present age, right now, currently. So look at verse 13. We do this currently, but we do it while we're waiting for something. It says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this verse, it speaks of the appearing of Jesus. This is something that's yet in, in the future. The present age, which was at the end of verse 12, it signifies something that has not yet run its course. Jesus has, he's, a, he's appeared a, a first time in this present age. We know that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That was Jesus' first appearance. But the Bible says that he's also coming a second time. The Bible presents the events of Jesus' life, his, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. The Bible presents those as facts, as happenings. And then it says that someday that same Jesus will come again, and he will return, and he will descend, instead of ascending to heaven, he will descend from heaven, and he will, and Paul says that this is the, uh, the return of our blessed hope. Now, this word hope, normally when we use the word hope, it's in reference to uh, something that's maybe uncertain. Like we say, oh, I hope to get this job that I applied for, um, but, but I'm not certain of it. Or um, I personally, I, I hope that Top Gun 2 will come out someday because Top Gun was the best movie ever made. <laughs> Amen, is what you're supposed to say. Um, another thing that I'm really hoping for is I really hope that Frank will not dance at my wedding <laughs> for all of the obvious reasons. Um, maybe he should dance and we can get it on video. At any rate, the way that we use the word hope is to denote something that we are yet uncertain of. But this is not the concept of biblical hope. Biblical hope is rooted in certainty. Biblical hope is repeatedly used for blessings that we do not yet have. They will one day be ours. They're still in the future. But they're promised to us, and therefore those blessings, that hope, is sure. Well, how do we know just because they're promised? How do we know they are sure? Christians would answer that by saying, because Jesus is alive. We can be sure of our blessed hope returning because he beat death, because he conquered the grave. And this concept of Jesus conquering the grave, of beating death, resurrecting from the dead, is central, absolutely central to the Christian faith. If you were to sum up the Christian faith, you could emphasize, you should emphasize the resurrection of Jesus. And this resurrection where Jesus literally comes back from the dead and stays undead is one of the major reasons that Christians believe that Jesus is himself God. Sometimes people say, well, is Jesus really God? Like, how do you, where does the Bible actually say that? Well, it says it in a number of places. In the first place it says it or, or, or the first place we're going to look at today, rather, is here in the text. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those aren't two different people. Paul's talking about Jesus, who is God. And so the, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, or what we'd say is the divinity of Christ, is so important to the Christian faith that Paul 
just mentions it here, and I think for our purposes is super helpful that we understand more of it. And so what I want to do is take a minute and see where this doctrine that Paul lays out in Titus is developed elsewhere in the biblical text. So the, the divinity of Jesus is established in multiple places throughout the Bible. Um, one of the first places that we see it is in his virgin birth, the supernatural occurrence of Mary being pregnant without having intercourse, which if you think, oh, that's crazy, it's hard to believe, how could that happen? You're not alone. People in the first century found that hard to believe as well. That's why it's such a big deal. But it is through Jesus' supernatural birth that God makes Mary pregnant through the Holy Spirit, not through intercourse, but through a supernatural work that the, that the line of sin is not passed on to Jesus. That line of sin is temporarily interrupted and Jesus is born supernaturally through the Holy Spirit and is then lives a perfect life. And that's the second reason or place that we see that Jesus is God, his sinlessness. He lives a perfectly obedient life that neither you nor I or anybody else in all of history could have ever lived because he is himself God. In addition to that, he fulfills Old Testament prophecies. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there were all kinds of prophecies that pointed forward to and anticipated the arrival of Jesus, and he fulfills those prophecies throughout the duration of his life and even in the midst of his death. Fourth place we see the divinity of Christ is the authority that he has over nature, demons, and death. There's this story in the Bible where Jesus is on a boat and there's a storm happening, and the disciples are losing their minds, and Jesus wakes up and he calms the wind of the waves simply by commanding them to be silent. And the disciples are like, what? He has this majestic authority to just go, waves, stop! And they stop. It's remarkable. And what people do oftentimes, preachers will say, what are the storms in your life, friend? How can Jesus calm your storms? No, that's not what that text is about. That text fundamentally, that story is about Jesus' lordship over creation, that he has the power and the authority to simply say to the waves, stop, and they do. In the same way, he has authority over demons, right? Demons come to him and, and he says, be gone, and they're gone. Or they tremble at his, at his name, right? What, there's accounts of demons saying, what are you gonna do with us, son of the most high God? And they ultimately bow the knee to him, even if it's, even if it's through, through coercion. Uh, Jesus additionally has authority over death. We see this when he heals Lazarus and brings him back from the dead. So Jesus' authority over nature, demons, and death demonstrates his deity. The next place we see the deity of Christ is in his claims upon the attributes and the prerogatives of God. There are places where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John, the book of John, chapter 17, I and the Father are one. And, and the Pharisees, when, when they hear stuff like that, the religious leaders, they lose their minds. They're like, who do you think you are claiming to be on the same level as God? Jesus says, because I'm God, basically. There's a place in John 8, 58, where um, Jesus says to the religious leaders, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they, they come unglued, and they want to stone him to death, because why? He was clearly referencing the book of Exodus, which is where Moses says, who am I going to tell the Egyptians sent me? And God says to Abraham, tell him, I am sent you. And Jesus, in John 8, 58, says, I am before Abraham a clear reference to him being God. Not only did he claim the attributes of God, but he also claimed the prerogatives of God. 
Meaning he had the, so here's an example. He had the ability and the authority to simply say, your sins are forgiven. And again, the religious leaders can't handle it. They're like, who do you think you, only God can forgive sins. Jesus is like, yeah, it's because I'm, I'm God. Additionally, we talked about this before, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, this is so significant because do you know anybody that has ever come back from the dead and stayed alive? No. That's why so many people disbelieve the centrality of Christianity. They say, no, people don't come back from the dead. That's what makes Christianity such a big deal. Jesus beat death permanently, came back from the dead. And then lastly, we see his authority and his divinity in his ascension into heaven with the Father. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus has been crucified, died, resurrected. He spends 40 days with the disciples. And then after those 40 days, he ascends to be with the Father in all authority there. And then he tells his disciples from there to go and make more disciples. Now, friends, for, for our purposes as Christians, and as we saw briefly here in Titus, we cannot ignore the magnitude of this doctrine that Jesus himself is God. This is so important to understand the Christian. He's not just an agent of God. He's not just God's assistant. He is God himself. C.S. Lewis, Lewis said it this way, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What C.S. Lewis says here is that he accepts the claims that Jesus is God. Now you might think, wait, C.S. Lewis, he also said Jesus is the son of God. So what's going on there? Like how can Jesus be God and the son of God at the same time? And that's a good question. I get posed that question a lot. People ask that. How can God be in Jesus, but Jesus is also the son of God at the same time? Here's, here's how, so follow me here. To be the son of God is to be of the same nature as God. Let me say that again. To be the son of God is to have and be of the same nature as God. Think about it this way, just from a simple grammatical perspective. The son of God, that phrase, that prepositional phrase, of God, denotes that he is of God. He shares in the same nature and essence as God. And so when Jesus claimed to be this, and it was clear throughout the Gospels that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, he was claiming to have that same nature. He was claiming to, in fact, be God himself. And this claim is ultimately what would get Jesus killed. The religious leaders, they couldn't handle it. They could handle Jesus as a moral teacher or maybe even as a prophet, but the religious leaders could not handle Jesus claiming himself to be God. And so they demanded that Jesus be crucified. Now the irony in demanding that Jesus be crucified is that Jesus knows the hearts and thoughts of all people. And he knew that they would make this demand. 
And he knew that that demand would eventually be fulfilled and he would be crucified. But notice this, Jesus does not work against it, rebel at it, fight it. Instead, he willingly goes to the cross. He voluntarily lays down his life for us. And this doctrine of Jesus laying down his life for us is where we, where we kind of pick back up in the, the text. Look down at verse 14. It says, who, who gave himself, meaning Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, this is the core of God's grace that Jesus gave himself for me, for you, for us. When our divine Savior appeared the first time in, in Jerusalem, he gave up his life so that we could be reconciled to him. This is God's grace. Jesus himself, as God, takes on the penalty that was due us and takes it upon himself. And he does this, the text says, to redeem us from lawlessness. Now, what does this mean, lawlessness? Simply put, lawlessness is sin. It's breaking God's law. God gives commands, and we, the instinct, the nature of our heart, is to break those commands and to disobey and say, no, I will do it my own way. Much like kids, right? You give commands, you say, don't do this or, or, or do this, and they say, no, like, I want to I live my life however I want to live my life, right? So... I want to share a story of how that happened with a little guy in our church, and um, I didn't ask for permission to share this, but um, I'm going to share it anyway, so sorry ahead of time, Cody and Lauren Kimmel. Um, so they have three, uh, three boys, and they're all terrorists, um, but, but they're sweet terrorists. We love them. And their, their middle son, Hayes, is, uh, he's a wild man. He loves to party, and I appreciate that about him. I can't wait for him to party at my wedding. Um, so I'm not dissing Hayes. I love Hayes. But there was one Sunday after church where he was playing around backstage and Stephanie Shoemate had kind of got after him and said, hey, you know, knock that off, Get, go out there. And he goes like this. He goes, I just want to live my life <laughs> and throws down his, his arms like this. <laughs> and, and we just couldn't help but laugh, obviously, because it was cute, it was sweet, but it was, I think, a commentary on our own hearts, Right? We all, like Hayes, just want to live our lives. We all just want to disobey what we're told and do whatever we want. We all think that we know better than God, but the reality is we don't. We don't know better than God. To think that we know better than God is to perpetuate our own lawlessness, our own sin. So to say, I, I know better than God, is to ignore God's grace and to seek after our own glory. Now here's where I want to Take a minute and be really clear. If I, if I was to stand up here and, 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 and urge you and say to you, avoid lawlessness, stop sinning, um, stop, stop disobeying God, stop doing this, stop doing that, I wouldn't be doing my job. And, and here's why. To do that, to stand up here and say, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning, is to miss the point of this text and to miss the point of the gospel. Because the, the point of the gospel is not just for you to stop sinning, but for you to receive God's grace. Like you can't stop sinning and somehow warrant more of God's love or, or change your heart more to a point where you're gonna earn more of God's favor. No, no, you can't do that. 
And nor can I just stand up here and tell you to stop sinning because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't show up and, and preach to people, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning, and then peace out, right? See ya. No. No. Jesus lived out what he told us. He lived out a life of perfect obedience because we couldn't, and then he died. So he doesn't just make demands of us and expectations, place expectations on us and not have himself the authority and the ability to carry those out. No, he dies for us. He did it first himself. He remained sinless and then took on your sins, my sins, so that we could be forgiven and freed from sin. The text says that he gave himself to redeem us. He paid the price with his own life to obtain the freedom for our lives. And Paul tells us that 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 freedom was from all lawlessness. Now, think of your life before you were a Christian, before you were converted. You may have you may not have thought of yourself as a lawless individual because maybe you obeyed the law, right? You were, you were an upstanding moral. You didn't, I don't know, rob banks and kill people. Maybe you vaped. I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not saying that vape is sin. It's just something I thought of. Uh, <laughs> maybe you were an okay individual for the most part, right? In every sense of the, the law, like the law of the land. But as far as God's law is concerned... You, you were not upright, you were not holy, you were not righteous in God's sight. Because as far as God's law was concerned, you had this entirely different frame of reference for operating. At point after point, your life before you met Christ was filled with the things that are contrary to God's law. You were lawless. You were marked by sin. You had done things, even perpetually, that God's law both forbids and condemns. But in order to set us free from that, Jesus came and the text says he gave himself for us. Now, not only did he free us, redeem us from lawlessness, he also did this. Look at verse 14 now. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who for his own possession are zealous for good works. So Jesus redeems you, he frees you, he purifies you, makes, him, makes you more like himself. This is the process of sanctification. And then he makes you zealous for good works, eager to do what is right. A person who's zealous for good works is eager to please Jesus and not please themselves. You have been redeemed by Jesus, then you are zealous for these good works. For those of you here that have been redeemed by Jesus, you know this. Like you feel like your heart is different. You've been changed. And the the natural inclination of your heart is to long for, to be trained by God's grace in order to bring glory to God. This is what I mean when I say the central point. The grace of God trains the people of God to long for the glory of God through our, our zealous good works, right? That we would, through our lives, demonstrate what it means to follow Jesus. People see their, our, our good works and what happens is they go, that person's different. They seem to be genuinely interested in my life. They seem to really care about others. They seem to serve others. They seem to really revere God as the center, as the focus of their life. They're not just out doing whatever, what everyone else is doing, but they're doing what seems like is right. When people make those observations about Christians, that brings great glory to our God. That life that I described is one that is uh, characterized by good works. 
As I was thinking about this concept of being zealous for good works, there was a particular guy that came to mind who I think emulates this really, really well. And um, some of you may know him. I'm assuming most of you probably don't. He's pretty low-key, kind of hangs out. um, uh, Pretty quiet guy. Um, His name is Chase Johnson. Chase Johnson is our facilities guy. He's our custodian. He's also a Grand Canyon University student. And that dude, I'm telling you, he, he's not here today. In fact, as we speak, he's on an airplane flying to India to serve and care for people who are very, very different than him. Um, but his life is characterized by, by this, this text. He's one who is zealous for good works. And I, I am, when I'm around him, I'm encouraged by him because he's a guy who's constantly like, hey, can I help you with that? Or can I, uh, you know, move this, or can I pray for you, or if, if he knows, like, I'm going to the hospital to visit somebody, okay, um, can I come with you, can I pray for you, pray with, the, with them, or pray for them, he's just a guy who just, out of a response to God's grace, he longs for the glory of God in his life, and he just loves to serve God, not for his own glory, but for God's glory, some of you know Chase, you're like, yeah, that's him, some of you don't know him, um, he'll be back in August after his summer is over, get to know him, he's, he's a, a super guy, much, m- many of you are like Chase. And I've experienced this as I've interacted with many of you. You are eager for, zealous for good works because of God's grace in your life. You've experienced God's grace. You're longing for the glory of God to shine in in your life and in the life of your family and in the life of your church. And I feel encouraged. I think that's awesome when I see that. Of course, this doesn't mean that we're perfect. We all still struggle with this. Our human default is to bring glory to ourselves instead of to God so that we'll feel better about ourselves. And when we mix that with how we view God, the, the, the training aspect, we mix that, we end up being trained not by grace, but by some fashioning of our own imagination. The reality is we're all trained by something. And this tendency to be trained by something else instead of by God's grace it leads us to long for our own glory instead of the glory of God. What's funny is this, this glory that we bring ourselves, it's always dim. It, it never fills us up. It never brings us to a place where we feel completed. It's, it's always dissatisfying. And so what do we do? We long for more and more and more. And we find creative ways to get more glory for ourselves. We share pictures on social media and we advertise our life as this really great thing and we stack up more ways that we can portray ourselves so it makes it seem like we're at the top. I'm not condemning social media. I'm saying the tendency of our heart can be to use good things to, to make ourselves look ultimate, to make it seem like we are the ones that have the glory, right? Or we, we buy more things in order to find meaning or to find happiness. We... Um, yearn for relational satisfaction in a, in a, in a, uh, in a parent or in a, in a romantic relationship or um, in any kind of job context. We're yearning for, for meaning. We look condescendingly at others who are different than us. We think, oh, they don't really know what life is all about. I know I'm, I'm cooler, I'm better, I'm um, smarter than them. We seek all kinds of ways to bring glory to ourselves. We look down at others who have a different parenting style than us and somehow they must be inferior or stupid or worse. We love our own glory, don't we? And if those examples aren't enough to to sort of demonstrate that we love our own glory, let me just say this. I think this proves my point that we love our own glory. Selfie sticks. 
selfie sticks demonstrate that we love our own glory. And if you don't know what a selfie stick is, bless your heart. Uh, your life is better. A selfie stick is, is one of these, it's, it's a stick that you put like your phone or your GoPro on the end of, but you don't point it outward, you point it at yourself. It takes a picture of yourself in your background. Now I'm not saying taking pictures of yourself is wrong, but I'm saying that the selfie stick, I think, demonstrates something fundamental about our hearts, and that's that we long for our own glory. We long for our own glory instead of the glory of God. That's because we've been trained by something other than God's grace. But it's God's grace that frees us from that and trains us to love God's glory. And this leads back to my central point. The grace of God trains the people of God to long for the glory of God. The grace of God trains the people of God to long for the glory of God. When you experience this, the grace of God, it does something to you, right? Like it changes you internally. It forms you. It shapes, it trains you. It creates in you a desire to serve others and to serve and love and obey and worship God. It, it builds in you a resistance to a renunciation of sin. And through grace, you become excited about God's will. You become zealous for good works. And every step of this process brings you closer and closer to God, and it brings more and more glory to God. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I, I don't really know if I've even experienced God's grace. I don't know that I can. Like, you, you don't know what I've done, preacher man. You're right, I, I, don't, I don't know what you've done, but God does. And the good news of the Bible is that God knows what you've done, and he still offers you his grace. Jesus gave himself for you. And if you will receive Jesus, he will wash you. He will purify you. He will redeem you from lawlessness, from sin. He will create in you a zealousness for good works. Verse 14, as we saw, it clearly says that Jesus gave himself to redeem people from this lawlessness, from their sin. And so friend, if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure if I can access the grace of God, I'm telling you, you can. God's grace is not far it is near. And if you will have Jesus, you will have that grace. For those of you that are here, you've already trusted Jesus, you, you already know that Jesus gave himself for you, this good news never gets old, does it? The good news that Jesus gave himself so that we could be freed from this, it never grows old. But I think it's important for us who know this to continually remember that it is God's grace that trains us to love God's glory. That's the main point of this passage. God's grace trains us to long for God's glory. And this horse that I'm continually beating is continued in verse 15. We're going to look at this briefly and we're going to see how important this doctrine is. Paul says this to Titus. Titus is a pastor and Paul doesn't want Titus to forget the importance of the gospel. And he says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Friends, the gospel is so important that Paul drives it home by saying again, Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody disregard you because the gospel is true and it's gonna keep being true. And so the grace of God trains the people of God to long for the glory of God. As we wrap up here today, I wanna ask this question. What are you trained by? What is training you fundamentally? 
Is it something of your own self-will or exertion or something kind of within your own imagination? Or are you trained by God's grace? Secondly, I want to wrestle with this question. Whose glory do you long for? Do you long for your own glory or do you long for the glory of God? Recognizing that Jesus gave himself, recognizing that we are recipients of grace, we can know that ultimately it's God's glory which is far better, far more fulfilling, far more satisfying. Now again, I don't want to stand up here and say, long for God's glory, long for God's glory, long for God's glory, not your own glory. Instead, the frame of reference I'm trying to convey is this. God's grace is for you, and out of a response to that grace, you can long for the glory of God. That's my hope, is that each of us will grip that, long for that, love that. So we're going to pray. We're going to transition into our time of communion um, and asking, reminding ourselves that God loved us, gave himself for us, and we remember that through the physical manifestations of the bread and the wine. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. We wouldn't know Jesus had you not revealed yourself to us in the scriptures, and so we pray that um, we would continue to delight in knowing the scriptures. God, help us to not work for our own glory, but instead for yours. Help us to do that with a mindset that loves your grace and not our own self-achievement or what we can do or not do for you. Instead, God, let our hearts be transformed by the good news of the gospel. We remember that now in Christ's name. Amen.